So when we look at these facts of what chemotherapy does, it increases metastasis. It increases angiogenesis, which is the blood vessel supply growth that cancer desperately needs to meet the high metabolic demand. It increases chemoresistance. It increases local recurrence. It develops that seed and soil theory. It disrupts the immune system, what's called a macrophage 1 to macrophage type 2 polarization. And it stresses the body and changes genetic expression that then disrupts the immune system. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Welcome back to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. My goal here is to really focus on critical thinking, independent thinking, breaking through the mold, the cloud of what we're told to think, you know, that controlled thinking and what we're only managed to think through group thinking. So we really want to break through that in this podcast. And we're not afraid of controversial topics to embrace because we what we want to do is we want to follow the science, follow the evidence, not just the word science, but actually the evidence and talk about it because following the evidence is going to lead us not getting out ahead of the evidence and not just simply mentioning the evidence and the science. So in this, in this podcast, especially today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the actual studies. And in future podcasts related to this topic, we're going to do some really, really deep dives, though this may appear like a deep dive. So this is the introduction podcast to a series that I'm going to do that I call the unholy trinity of cancer treatment. Now, obviously, I recognize that that title is controversial, but of course, it's to draw you in, but it's really looking at the evidence that provides this perspective. This podcast is a 30,000 foot view on this topic. And then again, we'll take a really much more level playing field view of each one individually, that being chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. So here we go. You know, it's interesting when we look at cancer and there's a phrase that goes with it. It's called the war on cancer. I don't believe in pure coincidence. That phrase, I think, has clear defined meaning, both currently but also historical. You know, the war on cancer was actually first mentioned as a phrase by President Nixon in his presidential address in 1971. And then he formalized this in the National Cancer Act in December 23, 1971. And it's interesting that the war on cancer actually has its origins literally out of war. And we'll touch on that. Chemotherapy, for example, that particular aspect was born out of the war department before it actually jumped in to the medical department. So when we look at this war on cancer, since its declaration, both in presidential address as well as law, over the last 50 plus years, what has this brought us? It's an interesting point because when we look at the support of this move to the war footing against cancer, it really ties into history. The actual biological warfare facility at the Army Fort in Dietrich, Maryland, was actually converted, so actually war building 
was converted to the Frederick Cancer Research and Developmental Center. So when I say there's this war department to medical department, they actually converted a biological war facility at a military institution into a actual cancer research and development center. So actually, it's, it's very objective in that statement. But from this war footing and from this conventional point of view, this concept, this relationship, it's present in, in origin, in declaration, in thinking, and in practice. And it's no surprise that this war against cancer has followed the similar war pattern that has dominated the entirety of the 20th century, even before that, but even so into the 21st century. I mean, everything is war, is it not? War is the answer to any and all conflict. And it's not enough that war is everywhere, and it's almost on every continent and almost every country. War now in this war on cancer is really the answer to disease that we know as cancer. And it's interesting, when we look at the war on cancer, there's really no other declaration of war on any other disease. You know, diabetes, there's no war on diabetes, war on cardiovascular disease. It's just cancer. So I find that really interesting that because one, the war on cancer is born at a war itself, but when you look at the other disease treatment strategies and modalities, it wasn't born out of war, so it doesn't fit. So I, I just find the connections there not circumstantial, but actually historically relevant and pertinent. So when we look at the war on cancer, let's tie this from a disease department to war department transition, from a war department to cancer department transition, and then from a cancer department to war on the body. So when we look at the disease department to war department, I want to talk about a few people in history, because you know me, I love history. Paul Urich, he gave us the treatment of disease with chemicals. Now, Paul Urick was a brilliant biochemist, and he lived from 1854 to 1915, so quite a bit a while ago. He won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1908 for his work in understanding antibody production by the immune system in response to bacterial toxin introduction. And this is where the phrase magic bullet came from. It originated with Paul Urick, magic bullet. And this originated in the late 19th century. Now, we now know that the magic bullet in causation of cancer or other diseases or in solution or healing of, it it doesn't exist. But this is where that magic bullet came from. And as crucial as Paul Yurk was to the origin use of chemicals to treat disease, this baton was passed to a gentleman by the name of Fritz Haber. He is considered by many to be the father of chemical warfare. He was intimately involved in the launch of the first battlefield use of chemicals in warfare on April 22, 1915, and it was called the onset of the chemists' war. In fact, he was called Dr. Death, not not necessarily a, a name I would like to be remembered in history, yet he was awarded a Nobel Prize in biochemistry in 1918 for his discovery of the process of ammonia synthesis. Fascinating. As so often is the case, chemotherapy's collateral damage and its unintended and far-reaching damage affected his personal relationship. It's reached through history to today, which we'll connect in a second, but locally there with his wife, Claire Haber, the wife of Fritz. She committed suicide in part to his development and research in using these chemicals for World War I. And she was quoted as saying, quote, what Fritz, 
course, Haber, was, has gained during the, these last eight years, I have lost. And what's left of me fills me with the deepest dissatisfaction. War is war. No way around it. More specifically, Fritz Haber said, death is death. However, it is inflicted. Even in the beginning, history documents unintended death and destruction as a result of chemotherapy. From the very beginning, from its very origin. The origin of modern-day chemotherapy and the treatment of cancer was not from World War I use. The origins are actually from a German air raid on Allied ships in, in Italy in World War II. The 1943 raid destroyed ships covertly carrying mustard gas bombs in World War II. Never heard of it? I hadn't either before I jumped into history books. That's because this was kind of swept underneath the collective Allied forces rug. But history records this event as what they call the Little Pearl Harbor. Fortunately, due to the Geneva Protocol of 1925, which prohibited the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and all analogous liquids, materials, or devices, chemical warfare was agreed to be excluded. Wink, wink. However, its use was continued in many ways to follow. Interestingly enough, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Stuart Alexander discovered the Allied forces mustard gas from the American ship, which was destroyed by German bombing bombing raids, was the source at the heart of many deaths in the region in the Mediterranean. So then we transition from disease department to war department, from war department to cancer department. And this investigative report from Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Alexander at the Barry Mediterranean was published on December 27, 1943. It actually inspired somebody else, a colonel by the name of Cornelius P. Dusty Rhodes. He was chief of the medical division of the Chemical Warfare Service. To change the target of chemical warfare from the battlefield to the medical field. That was his objective. Colonel Dusty Rhodes sought out and was able to convince two people that you may recognize their names. Alfred P. Sloan, Jr. and Charles F. Kettering. Of what we know as Sloan and Kettering Hospital and Institute. He encouraged them to endow a new institute that would bring together leading scientists and physicians to make a concentrated attack on cancer. It's really interesting when you look at this, you can simply almost replace the words physicians and cancer from this quote and endow it into generals and enemies and it sounds like a new conventional war news headline. All of this can be found in a great book called The Great Secret, The Classified World War II Disaster That Launched the War on Cancer. It's born out of war. And here's, here's a great, really great quote, but startling quote to consider. There's an eerily ironic identifier to this date of this announcement in August 7th of 1945 with this collaboration. It's a date that lives in the infamy in medical war- warfare. Most don't know about it. Remember, history tells the truth, whether we want to hear it or not, but the announcement of Sloan and Kettering of the funding for this Institute of Cancer Research and the announcement to the world of the atomic, atomic bomb drop on Japan, they were essentially the same days. So the announcement of this collaboration was August 7, 1945. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was August 6, 1945. And the bomb dropped on Nagasaki was August 9, 1945. Coincidence? I don't think so. What we are dealing with here is a transition from the War Department 
to the cancer department. This is the date, and these are the dates that chemical warfare moved from the battlefield to the medical field. This is the, the date that soldiers were no longer the target, but cancer was the target. And this is the date that civilians, patients, no longer were the unintended casualties of war, but now became the unintended casualties of a new type of war, the war on cancer. Which brings us to the cancer department to war on the body department. Because we know when we go to war on the tumor. But specifically what we're doing is we're going to war on the body. Remember, a tumor, a cancer, these aren't cells that are some bad Sigourney Weaver alien movie implanted in us. These are our cells. They are abnormal expression of ourselves, no doubt. Billions of them, trillions of them in many cases. But these are our cells. So if we're going to war on cancer, in a way we're going to war on our body. And we recognize that when we look at the battlefield. Think of any battle that you knew in history or know of in history. There is the battlefront and then there is the massive collateral damage. And that's the problem with war, is it kills those involved directly and it kills many, many others not directly involved. That is what war on cancer has brought. It's brought war on the body and all the destruction associated with it. So how are we doing on this 50 plus year war? Well, it's interesting when you look at the data because the actual first state in the United States, that is the state of Alaska, 1993, in that state, 1993, cancer became the number one cause of mortality, that's death, in adults over cardiovascular disease. Fast forward to 2016, now via the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, they actually now say that the leading cause of cancer death in 22 states is, excuse me, the leading cause of death in 22 states is cancer, not cardiovascular disease, and that's in adults. And that includes states that we kind of have an impression of really healthy you know, citizens, healthy people, California and Arizona. But then when we expand our look globally, and I've talked about this study in a wide variety of ways. It's called the Pure Study. It was published in the Lancet Journal in 2019. It's a prospective urban and rural epidemiology study. And this was a large prospective international cohort study that involves a, sub a substantial collection of data from 21 countries. And they, they classified them into high, middle, and low-income countries. And these include countries such as Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, Sweden, Turkey, Zimbabwe, so just a lot of different countries. And what they found is they actually found in the high-income countries, cancer is now the leading cause of mortality in adults over cardiovascular disease. Not just leading, but at a rate of twice or two times as many as that as cardiovascular disease in the high-income countries. And in fact, one of the lead authors said, we are, quote, seeing a new epidemiological transition from heart disease to cancer as a leading cause of death, which is occurring first in high-income communities. As I mentioned, so often cancer is a disease of lifestyle, and this study really goes ahead and proves that, that connection. So when we look at the global cancer data, that is from the World Health Organization, this is pre-COVID now because uh, you know, we're still waiting on some of this post-COVID, but I imagine it's going to be quite startling. But in 2018, there were 18.1 million new cancer cases. 
And this increased in 2020 to 19.2 million new cancer cases. So a 1.1 million new incidents of cancer cases. And then you look at the new cancer deaths, 9.6 million new cancer deaths in 2018, and this increased to 10. So if we just look at those numbers, it's not a war that's actually going very well. And when you look at the other data that is from the states in the United States, it's not going well either. Now, why is all this important? Why is it important now? Because when we actually look at the problem I think we're dealing with in medicine and that we're dealing with in science is nobody's reading. Everybody's doing what they're told. Everybody's following a consensus of experts, though nobody knows who the experts are or nobody who has been involved in declaring them as the consensus, as well as following expert opinions. And it, I always find it interesting about well, who declared them an expert? Some news anchor? Some media person? Are they self-declared? So it's interesting how we're following all this concept. Just being a bureaucrat doesn't make you an expert in anything other than just telling people what they want to hear to get elected. So there was actually an Institute of Medicine article from 2001 that actually talked about how physicians were practicing at a level that's 17 years behind the current published evidence at the time. Because doc, you know, so the point is doctors are practicing and they're not reading. They're not reading studies. They're actually just reading, you know, small little components of studies that they're told to read created by these groups and organizations. Really interesting, there's a uh, former editor of the British Medical Journal by the name of Richard Smith, and he said that it's estimated that there are 1.29 papers published in the peer-reviewed medical literature every minute. There's no way doctors can keep up with that. No way. And he said, quote, only 5% of published papers reach the minimum standards of scientific soundness and clinical relevance. And he said this, and in most journals, that figure was less than 1%. And then he goes on to talk about how from a 10-year time frame, about 788 papers were retracted, removed from the public record. And and most of it was because of data fabrication or falsification. We've not even gotten, gotten into the censorship yet. So if we extrapolate that out from 1950 to 2004, we get roughly 10,000 to 100,000 papers that were retracted at that point because of fabrication and falsification. No longer can we look at that as just a reason for those to be erased from history. Now we're dealing with just censorship as it relates to science. Again, we want to create critical thinking, not group thinking. We want to create independent thinking, not controlled thinking. So making that transition, let's look at what's listed according to a 2016 British Medical Journal, the third leading cause of death in the United States. It may surprise you. And if you're looking for a second opinion, this is a true second opinion fact. Medical error is the leading cause of death. That's medical error. They define this as dying from the care they receive rather than the disease or injury that brings them to care. And they looked at it from 1999 to 2016, and they found that there were 251,000 plus annual preventable deaths. And that was based on reporting, but there's a couple different problems with that. First is historically, the reporting of adverse events are terrible. It's often well under 10% because there, we doctors want to help people. And I truly believe most doctors are in that group. But when we do something that inadvertently hurts somebody, 
even if it is the accepted standard of care, we're not necessarily going to report that. And so that reporting is ter- is terribly low. But let's say we just take 10% above that 251,000. That would equal 276,599. Let's say there was a 100% increase, then that would be 502,908. That's what it looks like if we're looking at the reporting of these numbers and actually take them to probably, you know, just using them at 10%, it becomes a really tangible number that's quite discerning and quite concerning. So let's dive into the first of this trinity, chemotherapy-induced metastasis. And I'm always interested because truth It's like a knife. And a knife can really change things. It cuts. And so with that change comes obviously some pain, some discomfort. And simply following the evidence, the published evidence, I mean, things that are reported, it's in journals, it's been reproduced in journals, creates significant pushback. And it's just simply truth. I just find it interesting. There's ignorance that's willful and that that's intentional. You know, those that are willful, intentional, and then that that's just not. Those that are just uninformed, you know, you you can't help that. What you can do is teach and inform. And that's part of the podcast purpose here. But those that are willful and intentional in their ignorance, I think those are the ones that have something to answer to. So let's start with this study. It was from 2004. It's called The Contribution of Cytotoxic Chemotherapy to Five-Year Survival in Adult Malignancies. And this study looked at 22 cancer types, and they looked at adjuvant chemotherapy and five-year survival benefit, okay? And what's interesting about that is they only found a five-year survival benefit with adjuvant chemotherapy in 13 of the 22. And you would look at that and say, okay, well, that's great. That's, you know, over 15, you know, around 50%. But in only three of those 13 or that 22, did the five-year survival benefit that is in survival reach 10%? Imagine getting on a plane with a 10% chance to on time reach your arrival destination. Don't know too many people getting on that plane. So let me take this to another startling statement. They said this was on the upper limits of effectiveness because they said this was likely overestimated. Why? Well, let's look at breast cancer to be example. They looked at the survival benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer. Five-year survival benefit was only 3.5%. Now, if you're in that 3.5%, that's definitely huge. But when you look at it all across all cancer types, this was done in the U.S. and Australia, it was 2.3% in Australia. It was 2.1% in the U.S. That's it. Now, that's not showing and talking about how chemotherapy can cause metastasis. It's just simply saying that our faith that we've put in this strategy, though it can help people, and please don't get me wrong here. I think we're just discussing the evidence. Chemotherapy can definitely kill cancer cells, but it can set the stage for much, much worse. So when we look at chemotherapy, chemotherapy can increase the metastatic. Doesn't mean it absolutely does, but it definitely can increase metastasis. And we're going to talk about it. 
It increases local recurrence and regrowth. It creates immune dysfunction and immune suppression. It can cause secondary cancers. It causes chemoresistance. Well recognized, not refuted. It causes cancer stem cell activity. And here's the last. It causes epigenetic transgenerational inheritance of pathology. Now, this comes from a 2022 study in December. I'm currently recording this in January. This is the kind of evidence up to date we're going to provide. The authors here concluded two points. One, chemotherapy promotes epigenetic transgenerational inheritance of pathology. Here they're talking about cancer. Second, cancer chemotherapy treatment needs to be considered in later life as generational impacts, meaning we need to consider the impact of chemotherapy in future generations. That's what transgenerational inheritance is. It's the impact I receive and how I pass that off to my children and my grandchildren. Now, here's an interesting study from 2010 called the Pharmacokinetics of Anti-Cancer Drugs Used in Breast Cancer Chemotherapy. This looked at uh, rats. They introduced one single, one single intraperitoneal injection of a chemotherapeutic agent called doxorubicin. And they investigated the long-term effects on female-treated mice in this model. And they found that the transgenerational effect was most prominent, not in the first, the second, or the third generation of the offspring, but in the fourth, fifth, and sixth generation. So when you think about what legacy are we leaving, we're not just leaving a legacy that impacts the next generation with chemotherapy. We're leaving a legacy that impacts the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and who knows how many generations beyond that. And it's not that we just are looking at this and saying, wow, it seems to be that is chemotherapy, full dose chemotherapy is causing metastasis. We understand how this process works. And to understand how this process works in the literature, we have to understand how the genesis of cancer becomes a genesis of metastatic spread. And it occurs through several different steps here because understanding this process helps us understand how chemo, surgery, and radiation impact it. It alters the cellular metabolism, causes mitochondrial damage, alters genetic expression, disrupts cellular signaling, causes proliferation, that's growth, causes hypoxia, angiogenesis, lymphogenesis, creates an acidic tumor microenvironment, it recruits immune system to the tumor microenvironment, creates dysfunction among the immune system in the tumor microenvironment, suppresses the immune system in the tumor microenvironment, creates systemic immune suppression, immune escape, tumor escape, that's physical escape, intravasation, dissemination, circulating tumor cells. It carries with it what's called hypoxic memory. It extravasates and builds into new micrometastasis that eventually develop to macrometastasis. So what what chemotherapy does in causing metastasis, it changes the tumor microenvironment. It actually recruits the immune system to itself and turns the immune system through a variety of signals and effects and signaling pathways on the immune system, almost autoimmune-esque. Chemotherapy promotes what's called epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which is this movement of a mobile cell to a, excuse me, an immobile cell to a mobile cell. Epithelial being more immobile, mesenchymal cells having more mobility. So it, it moves from something that's contained at a site to something that travels. 
Third is chemotherapy promotes cancer cell escape. That's the physical that I mentioned before. Chemotherapy promotes immune system escape. That is critical to how cancer jumps out and spreads. Chemotherapy number five increases circulating tumor cells. And again, we're going to present data. We're just not going to talk big picture. This one's more 30,000 foot perspective, but in future podcasts, we're going to dive deeper into this. And finally, chemotherapy promotes favorable environments for metastasis, what's called the seed and soil theory. So just a few studies that really highlight this process. One called paclitaxel therapy promotes breast cancer metastasis in a toll-like four receptor dependent manner. So when we look at these facts of what chemotherapy does, it increases metastasis. It increases angiogenesis, which is the blood vessel supply growth that cancer desperately needs to meet the high metabolic demand. It increases chemoresistance. It increases local recurrence. It develops that seed and soil theory. It disrupts the immune system, what's called a macrophage one to macrophage type two polarization. And it stresses the body and changes dis- genetic dis- expression that then disrupts the immune system. Toll-like four receptors are a highly conserved receptor mechanism that helps us helps our body to recognize what's pathogen-associated molecular pathogen. So it's it's kind of an inherited pattern that our body and immune system will use to recognize invaders. So T-like four are highly expressed on tumors and cancers of the variety of lung, liver, gastric, pancreatic, ovarian, colon cancer. So they're highly expressed, in many cases exceeding 25% of all cancer types. And this leads to chemoresistance and metastasis. But beyond just these toll-like four receptors, chemotherapy induces metastatic behavior change through the process of going immobile to mobile. And part of this is through this what's called cytokine storm burst inflammatory signaling disruption, but it also enhances angiogenic factors. That's the reason for the lower dose form of chemo in what's called low-dose metronomic chemo or insulin-potentiated low-dose chemotherapy or IPT. It's recognizing that full-dose chemotherapy creates an inflammatory burst and creates the means to spread, but lowering the dose does not. Full-dose chemotherapy also induces breast cancer metastasis through what's called tumor microenvironments of metastasis. This is a collection of macrophages, endothelial cells, and cancer cells. And it's these portals, if you will, that allow cells to disperse and circulate throughout the body. Chemotherapy also induces metastasis through formation of VEGF expression. So, A 2011 study, chemotherapy enhances metastasis formation through vascular endothelial growth factor receptor 1 expressing endothelial cells. Here they looked at cisplatin and paclitaxel causing lung metastasis in this mouse model through the same TMEMS or tumor microenvironment of metastasis. And through this also chemotherapy, it induces chemoresistance in ovarian cancer. And also, and this ties into recently with COVID, what are called extracellular vesicles. Chemotherapy that's full dose increases and elicits prometastatic extracellular vesicles in breast cancer models. This has been found in the taxanes, the anthracyclines, which are different types of chemo agents. So the point here is that there's numerous studies and reproduction of those studies and duplication of those studies that show that what this article from 2017 entitled Stress-Inducible Gene ATF3 in the Non-Cancer Host Cells Contributes to Chemotherapy-Exacerbated Breast Cancer Metastasis. This quote, I think, says it all. 
chemotherapy is a double-edged sword. It is anti-cancer because of its cytotoxicity, definitely. Paradoxically, though, by increasing chemoresistance and cancer metastasis, it is also pro-cancer. However, still continuing with the quote here, the underlying mechanisms for chemotherapy-induced pro-cancer activities are not well understood. Here, we describe the ability that is in the study of paclitaxel, a frontline chemotherapeutic agent to exacerbate metastasis in mouse models of breast cancer. We demonstrate that despite the apparent benefits of reducing tumor size, shrinking the primary tumor, paclitaxel increases the circulating tumor cells in the blood and enhances the metastatic burden at the lung site. At the primary tumor, paclitaxel increases the abundance of the tumor microenvironments of metastasis, that's those portals, a landmark microanatomical structure of the microvasculature where cancer cells enter the bloodstream. And at the metastatic site of the lung, paclitaxel improves the tissue microenvironment, that's the soil, for cancer cells for the seeds to thrive. These changes include increased inflammatory monocytes and reduced cytotoxicity. Importantly, these changes in the primary tumor in the metastatic lung were all dependent on the stress-inducible gene ATF3 that was induced by chemotherapy, excuse me, in the non-cancer host cells. Together, our data, again, still quoting, provide mechanistic insights into the pro-cancer effect of chemotherapy, explaining its paradox in the context of the seed and soil theory. So, when you look at this, these authors are summarizing not just speculation, they're summarizing the how, the mechanisms. And this is really tied into a great review article published in October 2018 entitled Chemotherapy Exacerbated Breast Cancer Metastasis, a Paradox Explained by Dysregulated Adapted Response. And, and what this article looks at it looks at the evidence of how chemotherapy increases progression in the metastatic spread of cancer despite shrinking the primary tumor. So you can shrink a primary tumor with full-dose chemotherapy and achieve a, a time frame of no evidence of disease, yet what you may have done there, you may have set the stages for the metastatic spread. That is cutting your nose off to spite your face and then some. So despite reducing the size of primary tumor, Chemotherapy changes the tumor microenvironment, and this results in an increased escape of cancer cells into the bloodstream and the lymphatics. As I mentioned, chemotherapy increases these tumor microenvironments of metastasis and thus increases circulating tumor cells, satellite cells. And each of these TMEMs are composed of the three cells that I mentioned before, a tumor cell, a macrophage, and an endothelial cell. And these induce local and transient disassociation of endothelial tight junctions. It's opening that door even wider for circulating tumor cells to spread through entravasation and migration into the blood vessels and lymphatics to then disseminate and form metastatic sites. More, it's really interesting when you look at what chemotherapy does. As I mentioned, it draws the immune, the immune system to it, particularly things like macrophages, and it turns these macrophages on the immune system. And it takes what's called an M1 macrophage to an M2 macrophage. And this change in what's called polarization, both in the normoxic, but particularly the hypoxic regions of the tumor, and this is important as, talk, as we talk about radiation, 
This M2 macrophage polarization promotes growth, proliferation, tissue remodeling, immune dysregulation, and angiogenesis. More, these M2 macrophages also promote lactate production. That's that acidic environment that's a byproduct of that Warburg effect that most people talk about where cancer is using sugar inefficiently. And this further favors M2 polarization. More, these macrophages suppress what are called cytotoxic T lymphocytes. These are like your army and marines coming, storming the beach after the enemy here cancer. And what happens is these macrophages suppress it. Now, I've also talked about this on Webinar and Will in a future podcast about how iron is involved in this. So this really has broad, broad, broad reaching effects, not just in helping the cancer leave the mothership, if you will, but also goes ahead and starts prepping the soil so that when these seeds, these circulating seeds present, survive, they can thrive. That's just a little bit of the evidence about how this first of the Trinity chemotherapy can induce metastatic spread. In the future, we'll talk deeper in detail about the exact mechanisms, not just a 30,000-foot perspective, though we've presented some evidence here. We'll present evidence that, that really allows us to dive much deeper into that. I want to dive into radiation and then surgery because radiation also can induce the metastatic spread. And again, don't want to shy away from, you know, controversial topics. It's just simply following the evidence. So when you look at, if you're interested in a true second opinion here, what does radiation do? It, it increases local cancer recurrence, it increases cancer metastasis, and it can actually increase secondary cancers. So again, these are articles. Here's a 2017 article, Effects of Radiation on the Metastasis and Tumor Cell Migration. And what they looked at here in, in this study is they found that the radiation actually increased the tumor cell migration and thus increased the metastasis. That is, if it doesn't destroy all of those cancer cells. Radiation actually attracts migrating tumor cells and thereby facilitates their t- tumor local recurrence. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this in patients having surgical resection and there's local recurrence. Because remember, cancer is often described as the wound that does not heal. Radiation promotes M2 polarization, just as I mentioned with chemotherapy. It increases hypoxia and hypoxic cell signaling. Now, this is important because cancer loves hypoxia, and hypoxia drives a lot of the genomic mutations and metabolomic mutations that cancer takes on itself. It increases that epithelial to mesenchymal transition that's going from immobile to mobile. It increases circulating tumor cells, and it enhances the inflammatory cytokine and fat soluble factor secretion in and around tumor cells that directly influence its invasion and migration. Another 1991 study, so just not recent, but actually going back several decades, entitled Radiation Enhancement of Metastasis, a Review, Clinical and Experimental, Experimental Metastasis in 1991. They looked at non, they found that non-curative radiation increased circulating tumor cells, vascular damage, influenced angiogenesis, and promoted metastasis. Now, I think it's important here to recognize cure is not a clinically valid, validated endpoint. So in implying a cure on any aspect of medicine is reaching outside the science. Appropriate term there would be no evidence of disease. So when we look at radiation, we recognize, as with chemotherapy, that it is going to 
create damage that can definitely hit the tumor, can definitely kill cancer cells, but it can actually set the stage for a localized process to become a local recurrence process or, unfortunately, maybe even a systemic process. I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's focus on the evidence. So here's an article, Induction of Tumor Metastasis Receptive Microenvironment as an Unwanted and Underestimated Side Effect of Treatment by Chemotherapy or Radiotherapy. That's radiation. It's Journal of Ovarian Research in 2013. Here's what they said. Their words, not mine. These are well-known side effects of chemotherapy and radiotherapy that are mainly related to the toxicity and the impaired function of vital organs. However, the induction by these therapies of expression of several pro-metastatic factors in various tissues and organs that in toto create a pro-metastatic environment is still surprisingly not widely known. In this review, we support the novel concept that toxic damage in various organs leads to upregulation in bystander tissues of several factors such as chemokines, growth factors, alarmins, and bioactive phosphosphingolipids, say that three times fast, And these attract circulating normal stem cells for regeneration, but unfortunately also provide chemotactic signals to cancer cells that survive the initial treatment. So the point here is they're describing how in this review the science is pointing towards the problem of radiation, a primary treatment of this trinity. That's why I call it unholy, to gather your attention but how that can actually lead to the spread. Our job is to heal. The word physician in Hebrew, rofe, means healer. So if we're doing something that takes a tumor from local and spreads it, we are counter to that purpose. Now, the authors here are proposing a mechanism of solution of new drugs. But here's the problem. The mechanism that has brought forth this problem is being tasked with the solution of the problem. And my experience is that whenever those that create the problem, they should never be involved in the solution of said problem that they themselves created. So this is why we need a new solution, a new paradigm in how we go after cancer. Doesn't mean we discard chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. It just means we recognize their purpose, their place, but also their major, major risks. And that's why there must be a continued move to a more natural, holistic, and integrative role. So what do we know about radiation and cancer? The side effects of radiation treatment are underestimated and I think deliberately understated. Radiation treatment increases local recurrence risk. It increases circulating tumor recruitment to the original tumor site, that wound that does not heal. Radiation treatment increases systemic circulating tumor cells and it alters the tumor microenvironment, which allows it to escape. Radiation does increase metastatic risk. Doesn't mean it always will result there, but it increases the risk. Radiation treatment suppresses local immune system that's critical to the initial local recurrence and local spread. That's the local defenses. Radiation treatment increases local invasion of the original tumor. It damages healthy cells, increasing their susceptibility to tumor spread and initiation of distant sites. Radiation treatment increases secondary cancers. It's been shown that radiation exposure increases, has a latent time of seven to nine years of new cancer, and this can even go out to 10 to 13. So that's where that cutoff of five years, no, you know, no evidence of disease is great, 
but that doesn't mean that your, your journey's done. And finally, radiation exposure increases the risk of, again, other cancer types, thyroid cancer, leukemia, and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. So the question is not whether radiation induces cancer spread. The question is just when. Is it five years, one year, local recurrence within a year, or is it 10 to 13 years later? Now, 10 to 13 years, no evidence disease is great. Don't get me wrong. But we need to recognize the risk and be honest about it. That's why, again, a more natural, holistic, and integrative approach, I think, is required. And this applies to both fractionated and unfractionated radiation. Radiation promotes local recurrence of metastasis, the local recurrence being receding. Now, this is not new. There was a journal article in 1949 in the Journal of National Cancer Institute that talked about the effects of local radiation to biological behavior of transplantable mouse carcinoma. So this goes way back to the mid-20th century. So when we look at what radiation does, it causes metastasis, but it also can cause reseeding uh, or self-seeding. This is just metastasis in reverse, where a small, aggressive fraction of metastatic cancer cells that survive radiation, they re-infiltrate that original tumor site that is the wound that does not heal. But this increases its metastatic potential. Recruitment of circulating breast cancer cells is stimulated by radiotherapy. That's a journal article right there published in 2014, talking about how radiation in tumor cells in vitro and in vivo attracts migrating tumor cells back to that site of origin to actually promote new cancer growth. That's local recurrence. That's local self-seeding. But radiation increases the metastasis, and here's the how. It increases the circulating tumor cells. Lethal, this is a quote from an article called Radiation Therapy-Induced Metastasis, Radiobiology and Clinical Implications. Lethally irradiated tumor cells have long been shown to be able to promote malignant growth when mixed and co-injected with non-irradiated cells viable in animal models, an effect not observed with heat-killed tumor cells, saying that, look, when we have these irradiated cells and they're interacted with non-irradiated viable cells, this promotes an environment that allows malignant growth. But heat, hyperthermia, does not. There's also a radiation-induced bystander effect, which is the induction of biological effects in cells that are not directly affected by the particular attack or charge particle, but is in close proximity to the cells. So thus you can damage a cancer cell, not kill it, and it'll affect a healthy cell right next to it. It elicits what's called a tumor bed effect, which describes the difference in tumor growth when these tumor cells are implanted in a tissue that has been pre-irradiated compared to non-irradiated. This non-irradiated tissue type is more normal, but in a radiated type, it creates damage, it creates hypoxia, and this can in turn lead to the unexpected effect of increasing resistance. It's an unfavorable environment. Also increases the activation of dormant micrometastasis. That's pretty much self-explanatory. But this is a new understanding of metastasis and probably going dormant occurs much, much earlier in the process of cancer, not just a sequential process that goes from cancer, growth, invasion, spread, but from the beginning, cancer is spreading and going dormant to then then be able to come out of dormancy when the right time comes. And then loosening a phenotypic change, which here, this is primary tumors recurring at unsuccessful radiation types or radiation therapy leading to aggressive growth, 
exceptionally poor oxygen supply, that's hypoxia, resistance to treatment, and elevated metastatic potential. That's radiation. So to wrap up radiation, another article, again, just the evidence, not my opinion, radiation therapy to a primary tumor accelerates metastatic growth in mice model. And here's a quote, as the fields of surgical radiation and medical oncology have become more effective at treating primary tumors, distant metastasis have become an increasingly important limiting factor in patient survival. I find this quote very interesting because they talk about effective at treating primary tumors, yet then they describe how it effectively treats primary tumors but causes it to spread. So they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth there. Again, those that cause the problem are probably not the best to say, how do we fix the problem? Again, a more natural, holistic, and integrative approach is needed. So in summary, radiation, it increases epithelial to mesenchymal transition, angiogenesis, it creates immune effects, it alters the tumor microenvironment, it induces oncogenic metabolic and metabolic reprogramming, it induces cancer stem cells, increases circulating tumor cells, uh, stimulates resistance, stimulates metastasis, and stimulates secondary cancers. Last of these three points of the unholy trinity is surgery-induced metastasis. Now, my primary training was as a pelvic floor surgeon, so I recognized all the benefit that surgery can provide, but I also now recognize all the damage that surgery can provide. 2017 article in Cancer Research published entitled, Surgery for Cancer, a Trigger for Metastasis. And what they said here is that surgical operation may generate a permissive a permissive environment for tumor growth. Not new, but in all areas. And this takes me to a really old article, a 1907 article entitled The Results of Radical Operations for the Cure of Carcinoma of the Breast. So this concept of surgery actually triggering the metastatic spread not is just confined to this article of 2017 from the Department of Surgery, University of Pittsburgh, but actually goes back to 1907 here. And this quote said, long been acknowledged that the surgical insult itself may precipitate or accelerate tumor recurrence. The notion that tumor removal may enhance tumor recurrence was cautioned at the turn of the 20th century by Paget and Halstead, who found that patients who underwent resection of their cancer did not survive as, low, as long as those managed expectantly. Surgery, causing local recurrence and metastatic spread. And this takes us back to why? Because cancer is a wound that does not heal. And this was first described in a article from Dvorak entitled Tumors, Wounds That Do Not Heal. Similarities between tumor stroma generation and wound healing in 1986. A more recent article looking at wounds that will not heal in the American Journal of Pathology published in 2013 really describes this process about when you're cutting into an area in a dysfunction environment where that, where that cancer is a wound, there's dysfunction that doesn't allow it to heal, you're actually stepping into a trap. And how does that trap get sprung? Well, inflammation, alteration of the tumor microenvironment, create both physical and immune escape, allowing dissemination and circulation of tumor cells, thus migration and invasion at distant sites proliferating to form new metastatic sites. That is the summary of an article from 2017. Again, as I mentioned, a sur surgery for cancer, a trigger for metastasis published in Cancer Research. Not my opinion. That's the evidence of what surgery can do.
more than the, the systemic spread, surgery can also induce local recurrence. Journal article here entitled Local Cancer Recurrence, The Realities, Challenges, and Opportunities for New Therapies. And they go through the different aspects of different types of cancer as well and look at the risk of surgical recurrence. Breast, 5 to 25%. Non-small cell lung cancer, up to 40%. Pleura, up to 65%. Sarcomas, up to 70%. Rectals, up to 8%. So all here looking at the process of how surgery, cutting in and around a wound, this is why they want the negative margins, allows the local effects and tumor receding and wound healing response to, to culminate in cancer cells coming back to, thriving, and growing, and then eventually even becoming more resistant to treatment. And it and a part of this, obviously, surgical manipulation of the tumor increases the cancer release into the circulation, thus increasing the risk of metastasis. So when we look at a summary from this 30,000-foot perspective of what I call this unholy trinity of chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, what's the conclusion? Number one, cancer is the number one cause of mortality in high-income countries. Cancer is the number one cause of mortality in 22 states in adult, of adults in the United States. It's inducing what one author called a new epidemiologic transition, that's of the PURE study, from heart disease to cancer as the leading cause of death. Cancer is now responsible for twice as many deaths as cardiovascular disease in high-income countries. This is the evidence. This is the data. This war over 50 plus years is not going well. In fact, you might say we're losing this war on cancer. Those that have helped to create this problem are not necessarily the answers and the solutions to that problem. There needs to be collaboration to bring a more natural, holistic, and integrated perspective and rethinking on this war on cancer. We need a new paradigm. We need to move beyond groupthink to critical thinking. We need to move towards chemotherapy from a minimal impact. That is the low-dose insulin-potentiated form or low-dose metronomic form, but then combining it with other natural and holistic perspectives to provide us an integrative approach that targets the tumor cells and doesn't target the healthy cells. We need chemotherapy or treatment, for that matter, that doesn't cause the metastatic spread. I mean, that's a novel concept, right? If you have a headache and the doctor hits you upside the head with a two-by-four repeatedly and then brings you back and says, how's your headache? And you say, well, my headache's gone. Oh, great, success. Five-year survival, fantastic. And then the patient says, this is great, yes, but I'm not so sure what we're going to do about my brains all over the floor. The treatment cannot be worse than that which required the treatment. The same applies to radiation. We must prevent the metastatic spread, and radiation causes it. And it also causes local recurrence and resistance. The same applies to surgery. Surgery causes local receding and surgery causes local recurrence. That's the evidence from a 30,000-foot perspective. I presented just a few of the studies there for you to look at and read and critically evaluate and independently think your way through. This doesn't mean that chemotherapy, radiation, surgery can't help people. People get very defensive when you challenge the status quo, when you challenge the paradigm. What I'm simply saying is 
the evidence as read, which most people don't, is telling us that the current war path that we're on is doing more destruction to the body than it is doing healing. And we as physicians are healers, according to the Hebrew word and according to historically what we were. Now, if physicians are no longer healers, then maybe we need to come out and say that. But for me, I'm still a healer. That's what it means to be a physician. Integratively means to restore the whole. So I think this is a great place to wrap up this podcast. Look for more deeper dives on these three topics in the future. I encourage you to please share this podcast with anyone and everyone you know affected by cancer or any other said name disease. Here we're specifically talking about cancer or really just simply those looking for wellness or seeking to restore their healing. You can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find or download your podcast. Or you can also find this or me on my website, my personal branding website of www.drgoodyear.com. There's always hope when there are teachers that heal. To your health and wellness, and until next time, I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and this is the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. Thanks for listening.